This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we check in with the Rough Grouse Society's Brent Rudolph, talking bird dogs and conservation. Welcome back to the show for episode number 109. Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand this fall with Onyx. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance, so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything, that is a Yukonuba dog. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White Sharp Tail Side-by-Sides to the Wing Shooter Elite and Upland Ultralight Over and Unders, CZ USA has a shotgun for you. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos, they've got them all. Head over to cz-usa.com to learn more. 
And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One piece, rotomold design, frame steel door, simple, sturdy, sound. Everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to Dakota283.com and use the promo code PU20 on your next kennel purchase from Dakota283. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Scott P. from over in Michigan. He left us a review on the iTunes app. Thank you, Scott. Project Dublin t-shirt headed his way very soon. Anybody out there listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you've got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that by leaving the show a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion, you can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, I'm recording this intro in the morning, which means I am sipping Gundog Grind Coffee, English Setter Blend. Available now. Check them out, Gundog Grind. And in honor of our guest today, I'd like to make all the listeners aware of an upcoming membership drive the Rough Grouse Society is launching this Saturday, August 1st. They've got swag, they've got prizes, they've got a whole bunch of corporate partners involved. There's a cool knife at the $35 level. There's the Our Forest, Our Future t-shirt at the $60 level. Love that shirt. I've got one. The higher and higher you go, the more you get. There's Orvis gift cards. There's all kinds of prizes. Anybody that signs up during the month of August, the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society, you're going to get something right out the gate and you're going to have a chance to win a bunch of great prizes from all their corporate partners you can find more information on the membership drive beginning later this week at roughgrousesociety.org and with that said we're going to jump into our interview today our guest is director of conservation policy for the rough grouse society and american woodcock society brent rudolph he's a former guest of the podcast he joined us back in february for an episode where we talked about timber markets. Today, Brent and I caught up. Since that time we last spoke, Brent had a litter of English setter puppies on the ground. He's down to one now. The rest have all found good homes. We talked about that. And then we dive into some of the big moving pieces in the conservation world recently, including the Great American Outdoors Act and a bunch of other stuff that the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society are working hard or their members on each and every day. Hope you enjoy this one. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Dublin podcast from the Rough Grouse Society, Brent Rudolph. All right, let's jump into it. Brent Rudolph, welcome back to the Project Dublin podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back again. How are you? I'm doing well. Also, it was... That was late February, I guess. I saw you last uh, down in Wisconsin, and we did a podcast that was we talked about timber markets with our mutual friends and uh, colleagues, I guess, if you will, Ben Jones and Forrest Jabot. That was that was a fun conversation, and wanted to get you back on. But boy, a, a lot has happened since that time that we met in, in Wisconsin, hasn't it, Brent? <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, I can think of every aspect of my life, and I could say a lot has happened since then. So. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> there were some puppies involved in between that time and now, wasn't there? Yeah, um, a really unique experience. So basically, the I was at the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference the week in March when basically you know the world started shutting down, or at least our part of the yep. world started shutting down. All the uh, all the restrictions on 
on gatherings were starting. We were starting to rein in travel within Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society. I got home about 9.30 on a Friday evening after being there that week. And um, that Saturday morning, our, our, our set had into la- started going into labor that Friday midday. And uh, we had a litter of six puppies starting early Saturday morning. So my wife and I and my two daughters, I have a middle school and high school age daughter, um, all have been in the home with um, the six pups, now just down to one pup. We kept one. Um, so yep. that was a really unique experience, having a litter of puppies arrive just <laughs> as we were all cooped up in the house together. Yeah, I suppose there there were pros and cons to that, I would imagine. Yeah, I, you know, on, on the whole, I think um, at least just in terms of puppy rearing and having uh, plenty of help and um, – yep so forth that was really positive we were a little, little worried about socializing given you can't you know we couldn't interact with a lot of other people but um right you know hearing from the five other pups that went on to new homes everybody's been really pleased with um how well they adjusted to their new areas so i think um even though it was only four of us they had four humans around them every minute of their lives um you know from the time they were born till when they went on to their new home so i think that worked out pretty well for them yeah, I I recall when those pups hit the ground for you, we were keeping in touch, and that was that was when, like you said, things started shutting down, and it became a reality for I think most people, you know, at that time, which previously it maybe wasn't, or it was kind of not as well on our radar, but there was just a lot more uncertainty, and so I remember you were talking, you had the pups out in the yard, but like you were like people were walking by and yeah. you kind of had them out there, but it was like, you weren't necessarily mingling and it. It was just, that's the way things were. And now it feels more normal to us because we've been dealing with it for months. That's human nature, but it doesn't mean there's any less uncertainty right now. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have kind of the dogs out on display. People would come by and, and, you know, comment. And here's a, here's a puppy, but you so can't forth. come pet yeah. it. <laughs> we'd have, yeah. And we, we'd even have people come by or oh, are any for sale? Like, no, we've got homes for all of them now. Cause everybody was looking for, for puppies and companionship around that time. So yeah, yeah. it's been, been pretty unique, but yeah, they great, great litter pups. I'm real excited. So we've got, I've got now two females. The, uh, the mom obviously is ours. She's uh, about five and a half and, uh, okay. And Hazel, the youngin, is doing uh, doing really well. Really uh, coming into her own right now. Another ha- another Hazel in the RGS clan. You're yeah. John Steigerwald's got a Hazel. John's got a Hazel, <laughs> and I thought that could be problematic, but the, it was kind of a family affair to name her Witch Hazel. Um, oh yeah, is, is uh, kind of what we came up with. So I could just call her Witch all the time if I needed to do that. I was actually, I was talking to John last week and I told him that I was quite fond of the name Hazel and for a grouse dog, it makes a lot of sense in, yeah. in much of the covers that we hunt. A lot of times there's Hazel and that's a, that's a good, good thing to be around and have your dog in. But the problem that I had is we have my two and a half year old son. His name is Hunter. My six year old English setter, his name is Hartley. And the whole age thing has already gotten carried away. There's been numerous times where I'm trying to yell for one of them and I say the wrong name. And so my wife and I both agreed that adding another H into the mix was a no-go. So we went with Rose this time around. Oh, okay. Well, because mom's name is Rose. The uh, My older son's oh, really? name is Rose. Yeah, so Excellent. I have a Rose and a Hazel. So Real original a, bird dog names we here. We got an overlap there too, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, was that the first time that you had gone through that process, had pups and everything, yes. or is that something you'd done before? No, that was the first time I'd gone through that process. So um, 
I've got a line of dogs that kind of a a number of folks know them as kind of the Michigan DNR line. There's this line of English setters. Um, you know, Al Stewart, the longtime game bird specialist in in Michigan, has has been involved with uh, this line of dogs for a while. And and uh, before him, Andy Ammon, who was a real well known uh, grouse and woodcock biologist in Michigan, was kind of one of the founders of of uh, some of the lines stretching further back. Um, so my first setter from the early 2000s was from this line, and um, I was without a dog for. I was I worked for Michigan DNR at that time. I was without a dog for a number of years until we got uh, Rose, who's from this line. And uh, so this was the first time we did a breeding. The the whole plan is just to be able to keep a uh, you know keep a good line of dogs going, keep one pup for ourselves, and send others on to good hunting homes and uh so if all goes well with hazel three to five years or so from now we'll do the whole thing all over again and keep it all cool. keep it all humming along so they're uh really good grouse dogs and really great uh with the family and with our kids and uh, uh i tend to have smaller size dogs a little easier to travel with them along with everybody else because um they're pretty much with us all the time um so yeah that's just this was new experience overall, let alone a unique way to go into it. Right. Well, you're talking about doing it again, so it must must have been okay. Yeah, I think the next time will be different. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like just like bird dogs, you know, the first one, you it's you learn something I, I would imagine hopefully you learn something all the time with when it comes to dogs and really anything in life, but more well informed and more knowledgeable for the next time around. Yeah, I guess learning learning stuff is important. We've been learning a lot of other stuff here these last few months too, with all kinds of happenings going on. And um, it's been, uh, like I said, it's been an interesting set of experiences in all aspects of life here lately. And it's been pretty busy in a positive way and a conservation note um, here as of late too. The other things that we discuss chatting about while while we're together here. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're definitely gonna come back and talk about some of these current events and some of the things that rough grouse society american woodcock society is working on i I do want to rewind a little bit and kind of tell brent rudolph's story a bit before we do that i before we leave the michigan dnr setters thing i well first of all how big is your how big is rose as you mentioned smaller dogs but i'm just curious yeah she's about um low 30 pounds range okay um yeah and um very athletic she has. It's interesting because she has filled out a little bit since having puppies. She's still very slender, but the, her shoulders and everything else seem a little bit broader too. So I think that's kind of brought about a, a little bit of a shift. Um, sure. Yeah. So I have definitely heard of the Michigan DNR line of setters, but I don't know much about them. And I don't necessarily know how much there is to know about them. But I'm really just kind of curious, like, is that something that just kind of nobody's going to go online and would you find a website dedicated to Michigan no. DNR setters? It's just kind of this thing that's sort of carried forward. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, there's, there's a few different um, kennels and lines and trainers that you'll see that folks would recognize. Um, the big thing with, with those, with, with those dogs in general is most of the owners have tended to be like me. Um, the folks that are breeding them are not really recognized kennels. They're folks that spend a lot of time in the grouse and woodcock covers here mostly in Michigan but elsewhere as well folks just kind of know them by that association you know being able to see them out cross paths with them hunt with hunt over them hunt with them you know from time to time and then um, 
you know, you find another line from an established kennel that you breed in and, and bring over some other traits that you're looking for. But a lot of folks that have kept these dogs going are mostly just diehard hunters, and they do very periodic, you know, very very infrequent periodic breedings like we do um, to keep that line kind of going and, um, you know, keep a, a handful of other dogs scattered out around uh, to other, other folks. Um, and that's yeah. been kind of the history of them all along. So, um I have no intention of doing this on a very regular um, basis for a variety of reasons. I got plenty of other things going yeah. on, so that fits my um, style in terms of being able to enter into the, uh, the breeding side of the dog realm a little bit too. Yeah, cool. And Ben Jones has a pup out of your litter. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We had just two okay. females, that's so he's thought. got the other the other female. So they're litter okay. mates, and they'll have a good chance to have uh, family reunions as we get together in the future really yeah. before that that's always fun that's always fun well before you were breeding grouse dogs and doing conservation work for rough grouse society american woodcock society brent there was obviously some kind of path that led you here so i i guess i'll start on the sort of the outdoors slash upland hunting side of things yeah. how did that how did that spark get ignited for you well um I'm one of the folks, sometimes folks, sometimes known as adult onset hunters. Um, I okay. did not grow yep. up in a hunting family at all. Um, I grew up in Northeast Ohio, kind of suburban, kind of on this outer fringe of suburban Cleveland, Ohio. And um, we were an outdoors family. Um, we had some family members that served in the military. So we, you know, we were, um, uh, would do target shooting and other things. And we're around guns yep. some, did lots of camping, um, hiking, backpacking. Um, my dad actually grew up in, uh, around Miami, Florida and, um, my grandparents and some of their siblings from that part of the country, um, bought a cabin in the Appalachians in Western North Carolina. And we spent a lot of our family vacations going there. So a lot of my interest in the outdoors started from being down there a lot. Um, I was a boy scout growing up. I was never all that serious about the working part of it. I was in the troop because we had access to free camping gear and we'd get together and go on outings together. Um, and then it wasn't until that's, that's where my interest in the outdoors and in wildlife came from. And then it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I eventually became a hunter. And then again, as I came into um, Michigan DNR, I started working in um, wildlife division in um, 1999 and um, had done some upland hunting there. And... Um, used to be again with this dog line and and a variety of other dogs it wasn't exclusively english setters but a lot more english setters back in the day uh, almost all the wildlife biologists for the state had bird dogs they'd be in the trucks of them while they were working especially obviously in the northern country and everything and uh there was still a handful of folks like that um i shouldn't say a handful probably more than that but obviously not as common as it once was um and uh that's what got me turned on to the interest in in uh you know, having an upward dog myself where the first one came from is out of that connection. And for me, um, I was actually the deer, uh, a deer researcher and deer and elk program leader for Michigan DNR for a number of years, but I always enjoyed upland hunting more. I like being a little more active and out and moving around, yeah. just kind of exploring areas when I'm out and about is, um, I've uh, commented that my dogs are often kind of cursed by having a, such a curious owner because rather than going back to the best spots all the time, I tend to try and find some new <laughs> area that I haven't been to and explore it and check it out and 
you know, maybe scout it out remotely to know it's going to be uh, promising, but also just trying new things and new experiences, including other states and stuff, too, has always been a bigger part of the interest for me than necessarily hitting the tried and true places, you know, year in, year out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know the that sort of adventure-seeking aspect of things, especially when you when you involve something like bird hunting, that kind of is your, that's like your driving force. Uh, you can really... That that exploratory part of upland hunting and just going to new places and like you said, being active. I mean, that's that's really one of the one of the main things I would say that drives me at the moment and just getting into some of these. And we're obviously fortunate, blessed. You're in Michigan. I'm in Minnesota. I'm in Wisconsin. We have we have areas that if you want to want to put down some boot leather, you can you can get into some places and kind of feel like you're the only one there and and maybe the only one that's been there for at least a little while. And, uh, I, I know I really enjoy that. Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate, you know, to be able to combine work trips with hunting trips and, you know, do some, um, sharp tail hunting and prairie chicken hunting and other things over cool. uh, my dogs in the past. And, uh, it's been a number of years since I've done that. Um, but, uh, I've enjoyed that, um, you know, jumping in sometimes without a whole lot of, uh, um, obviously specific local on the ground knowledge, but just heading to a new place and, and uh, trying something out. And certainly doing that over a dog is um, far more enjoyable and um, still potentially productive than, than just wandering out and about on your own. So <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, yeah, for me, that was as a young biologist, one of the things that just intrigued me as well is being able to kind of explore places from the perspective of the dog that's going to be much better than uh than you at zeroing in on the right spots to look at and um, experiencing, you know, cover and understanding the way wildlife are using different areas. Yeah. Um, even outside of the hunting season when you can be out and after them um, in ways that you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't ever be able to pick up on your own without your can companion with you. So it sounds like you're, you mentioned being, you know, you got into upland hunting later in life and you had some peers, colleagues that kind of, kind of drew you into it i imagine they in a sense paved the way for you were there were there any major challenges or anything for you to kind of get get your feet under you and start getting after it yourself or was it just time and experience with these other folks that kind of mentored you and led you into it yeah i mean um i had um having time and experience with other folks to get out and see what it was like you know to hunt over a dog and obviously learn a little bit more about i mean you know even as a biologist there's a difference between studying biology and and knowing concepts of managing wildlife and habitats and there's a whole different realm when you're out there actually looking for for birds in the time that you need to find them in the hunting season um but you know there was a little bit obviously of an advantage to understand some of the basic principles that you want to be uh, zeroing in on as a biologist before you start in as a serious hunter having folks to take me out um and help dial in that knowledge and understand a little bit better what you're looking for was um was helpful the other thing that was very helpful for me at the time was my first dog was before i had kids um i was married but we didn't <laughs> have kids yet and uh yeah. so being able especially through just trial and error and spending lots of time with um, her as a pup and then as a maturing dog. Um, you know, I mentioned at that time was when I fit in, fit, fit in some other hunting excursions, um, pheasant and sharp tails and, and, um, I mean, out of state pheasant. So he's getting into really serious pheasant numbers and some points at that time. Um, and sharp tail grouse and, uh, prairie chickens in Kansas and so forth. And, uh, 
just kind of, again, a lot of trial and error and experimenting with things and uh, learning probably some bad habits alongside the good habits too. Um, yeah. It's been a, it's been a fun journey over the years. And uh, the kids, my daughters were really harassing me about getting another dog for a number of years. Our older, our prior setter passed away. And uh, at that point in time, our lives were just too busy and daily work commutes and everything else were too much to consider getting a puppy. Um, but as soon as they started working with rough grouse society in uh, 2017, um, just a little over three years ago, we started on the search pretty seriously and then ended up with our, uh, our next dog pretty shortly after that. You've kind of dropped some hints and breadcrumbs as far as how your background in biology and DNR has led you to rough grouse society, but let's just here kind of close yeah. that loop and, and let us know how you wound up in your current position. And then tell us a little bit about what your current position is at rough grouse society, American Woodcock society. Sure. So, you know, I worked, I mentioned, I started with Michigan DNR in 1999. I was an area biologist, covered several counties in Southern Michigan, managing public lands and working with um, hunting regulations and quotas and wildlife damage and all kinds of good stuff like that. Um, and moved into a research job um, just a few years after that. And um, I was kind of surprised um, when the when the job for Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, came open. It was with um, the retirement of Dan Desiker. Um, and so at that point in time, the position I applied for was strictly framed as um, kind of working on the, the legislative and policy um, programs for the uh, for the organization. And as I had evolved in my job through research, then working with as a, a program leader, doing a lot of work with the Natural Resources Commission in Michigan, setting up hunting regulations, um, doing a lot of work around deer involves a lot of interaction with the with the public, with the media, with the legislature, who's often in a state like Michigan interested in being involved or understanding or or um, coming up with their ideas about deer management. Um, and so I had done a lot of policy work without ever really having that explicitly in my job title. Um, and looking at that opportunity when the posting came up with uh, RGS, I really enjoyed working for state government. I was kind of I was pretty proud, you know, civil servant, public servant, um, as cheesy as that might sound, but um, mm-hmm. understanding there was maybe a chance to try something new to really focus strong on the policy realm, um, to focus on trying to dig in and spend a lot of attention on legislation to be able to have impacts um, that can be pretty considerable with just, you know, the passage of a few pieces of legislation. And um, having that shift be into the realm of grouse and woodcock and, you know, forest, healthy forests and and young forest management um, was just all a really appealing opportunity for me. so I went after it and um, started, like I said, in June of 2017. Um, the position ended up evolving. We had some other staffing changes, and so I took over supervising staff and, and uh, overseeing kind of our on-the-ground programs as well. And I say overseeing, yep. but really our, you know, now our forest conservation directors, those are the folks that are really chasing down opportunities on the ground. They're building collaborations with other agencies. Um, they're building the connections in their individual states. I just kind of help try and facilitate that work and stay out of their way for them to get the the bulk of the uh, the organization's good work on the ground done. Um, but being able to kind of interface with them and bridge the projects and the fiscal side of things together, so the organization is 
heading in the right direction. Um, that's a chunk of my, my job now, as well as trying to continue with the policy and legislative work. Yeah. You mentioned Dan Desker and I recall I, I worked with Dan Desker when I was at the Rough Grouse Society that was, you know, towards the end of his tenure there when I was there in 15, 16. And I, I remember, you know, I always enjoyed my conversation with Dan and he's, you know, he's kind of a legend at the Rough Grouse Society for good reason. And he would always talk about, because he, you know, he would spend time in Washington DC and, and mm-hmm. somebody might see that on the surface and be like, well, shoot, you know, the girls don't live in Washington DC, but Dan was always, he was always so good at explaining how you need to be part of the conversation. And if you're not there, you're going to miss opportunities to create habitat where grouse can and should live. And I, you know, Ben's a big advocate for that. That's kind of, it's carried on through. So I'm just, I'm curious if you could kind of dive a little bit deeper and tell us how, and we're going to get into some of these very specific issues, but again, in more of a general sense, how, you know, being involved in some of these conversations can lead to that on the ground work that you're talking about, whereas a forest conservation director might be actually out in the woods marking timber for a sale, which is awesome. But there's also habitat work that happens in on Capitol Hill, I guess, if you will. Yeah, it's it's absolutely critical and it can be very frustrating. And, um, you know, the wheels of progress can turn pretty slow in D.C., as everybody knows at times. Um, but then capitalizing on just a few opportunities, um, you know, being in the it's it's not by chance you're going to be in the right place at the right time when you're trying to navigate something on Capitol Hill. You need to be present. You need to understand the the, um, the uh, players at any given time that can be effective advocates. Um, and these days, you know, it's not really popular to be bipartisan. Um, most of the most of the time, <laughs> folks are getting their attention and they're um, you know they're looking for votes to be able to stay in office by kind of espousing the the views typically from one side one extreme side or sure. another um yeah. and that's one of the challenges is that you know conservation in the realm we're in you know it's bipartisan it's nonpartisan. there's there's no one really that doesn't benefit from good conservation good management of our of our natural resources uh, public and private so it's hard to um you can't you can't fight the battles necessarily to get that done as much as you tend to think you know it's, you want you want to throw down and, and get a good fight for your values but you need to also be able to be present and able to navigate just the right convergence of opportunities to get people set aside that partisanship and say this makes sense um to all of us it's the right thing to do you know let's make it happen um and so sometimes things happen on the tail end of uh, of omnibus bills, and when the government shut down, shuts down a couple times, and they finally need to pass a budget and package things together, and you can use that as a vehicle to move conservation, you know. Um, and and many times those kind of unique uh, opportunities come out rather than simply introducing a bill, having a debate, passing it through both sides of Congress, and having it signed into law, like the old Schoolhouse Rocks version that we. <laughs> um, some of us grew up on and knew it doesn't always happen through a direct linear process like that. Um, pretty seldom that that's the case anymore. Yeah, I know that it's complex and that's p- perhaps as, as deep as I get sometimes just knowing that that's a complex issue. Rough Grouse Society's got people there. You know, the organizations that I support, Rough Grouse Society and your other partners in converse, conservation, yeah. most of these groups have people that are 
in those conversations on my behalf as a member of Rough Grouse Society, as a member of these other organizations, I trust that they have people in the room, in the conversation, speaking out for the benefit of me as a Rough Grouse Society member, but to the benefit of the mission of RGS or any of these other organizations. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the because there were some major major movements on a few things in current events recently, and yep. and we're going to hit on those. Let's start with recovering America's Wildlife Act, or sure. AKA RAWA. Yep. Tell me about it. Yeah. So if um, the folks have been paying attention, the the discussion around RAWA or recovering American wild recovering America's Wildlife Act has been going on for um, about three years. I think more than three years now. The whole concept behind RAWA is to try and bring some additional, you know, non-hunting-based funding in to pay for the conservation work, uh, primarily done through state agencies. And the target is for um, what's phrased species of greatest conservation need, or SGCN. It's not really a good acronym that rolls off the tongue, yeah. but basically, <laughs> no. those are those are wildlife species that each state has identified in a wildlife action plan. So every state in the nation was required a number of years ago by the federal government to develop a wildlife action plan. They've been updated several times, and those um, conservation species, let's call them that, are those that are um, on the decline, or their habitat is threatened, or they're very restrictive in their range. There's some type of threat to them that they're not endangered. They're really not in that necessarily in that boat yet, um, but they are at risk of potentially being endangered. And so, one of the big appeals to get something like Rawa across the line is wildlife managers with resources in hand um, can go, can set about the management practices needed to help these species before endangered species, especially federal endangered species listing is required. So it's kind of the idea of um, keeping common species common, or at least keeping species that um, uh, are on the brink from slipping any further over so that there's not even more resources and more restrictions on land management and, and so forth um, that can come in place when uh, when the ESA, Endangered Species Act, kicks into gear. So Rawa has gone through a couple of different iterations, but most recently, all of the past few versions have included taking a portion of funding from outdoor or excuse me from oil and dra- oil and gas leasing um, and using that to direct it towards those conservation funding needs for um, the state wildlife action plans and the most recent version through the 4th of July holiday weekend uh, we put out notice that uh, on July 1st the House of Representatives included it within a pretty large infrastructure bill so again another one of these instances where a standalone piece of legislation wasn't getting activity, uh, but by being incorporated in an infrastructure bill that involves other aspects of obviously manipulating land, managing land, and for the case of infrastructure, um, incorporated that latest version of RAWA. So there is some activity. There's going to need to be um, passage in the Senate. Obviously, there's been a lot of other distractions lately um, in Congress. Um so this was an important step, but is still more needed to get over the line. And um, the reason our folks really should care about that is um, grouse and woodcock are listed in a number of those state wildlife action plans, and so they would be uh, the needs for those species would benefit from having this funding. And um, 
it's an outstanding opportunity to really expand the resources available to do good conservation work on the ground. I'm curious on the state wildlife action plans, and this may be, it may be so variable amongst species if we need to narrow it down to grouse and woodcock per se for this conversation. Are there benchmarks or standardized indicators that would take a species and put it under greatest conservation need how is that how is it how is it determined that the rough grouse or the woodcock is a species of greatest conservation need in a particular state yeah that's a good question there was some background noise going there yep (laughs) there's there is not a um like a core set of metrics because um you know the other thing that we commonly overlook is there's not a consistent way of monitoring all wildlife populations um sure you know both both comparing how you monitor moose and deer and butterflies and upland game birds like grouse but also how grouse are monitored from one state to the next um so the key is developing the plan as a process every state that's developed their wildlife action plan has to engage resource managers in their best scientific assessment and judgment of the condition of species and habitats there's need to take public input into the process and ultimately the plans uh, they're all available as everything is these days are online the plans lay out what the threats are and they're often framed in terms of again threats to habitat what types of habitat have been lost to the greatest extent state by state which ones are under threat from additional subdivision or development or invasive species and other things that are also threats in certain cases And by focusing on the habitat, then you look at, well, what species are dependent on these habitats? Um, So you can certainly have indicators like our grouse flush rates or our drumming counts or whatever have declined. But you can also look at what type of habitat the grouse or any given species you're interested in depend on. And they uh, are associated with these habitats that have experienced the greatest impacts in recent years. So the states propose all those have input and then ultimately they're passed off to you know the federal government to have some oversight and look at and make sure that there's not some crazy scheme that someone cooked up to do something that's <laughs> not appropriate with the uh, intent of the of the resources um, and ultimately currently grouse are identified in nine by 19 states um, in their state wildlife action plan uh, and American woodcock in 29 states um, yeah. which is, of course, a considerable portion. Um, they don't occur in all 50 states either, so it's a considerable portion of the states within their range. Right. It's safe to assume that if they're listed in, in 19 states as a species of greatest conservation need, that they were once more prominent in those states. So you've got 19 states are in trouble, I guess, if you will. Those are my words. and. Yeah. They're not in all 50 states to begin with. There's Meanwhile, there's other states where they're probably not a species of greatest conservation need, but the slippery slope effect is kind of in it's in full view, just knowing that something's going on in these other 19 states, we better be paying attention. Yeah, that's another that's another good point that it's it's not just a matter of how abundant they are. There has to obviously be an element of a historic presence. Um, so if a if a certain species was always kind of on the very margin of its range in a certain area and never been all that abundant, never really had much habitat available to it, that doesn't qualify it as a species of greatest conservation need because that state's not going to be critical to the future of that um, species. So yeah, the fact that there's the number of states involved um, that have identified them, that means those are states that, that do have the capability to support populations that did in the past um, support higher populations um, and a greater 
greater amount or greater quality of habitat that's um, that's at risk right now and, and need a little extra help. The woodcock side of things is almost, I'm fairly well versed in the struggles and the challenges that rough grouse are facing across the landscape at the moment. And I feel like we, we're hearing more about that now, which is a good thing, but the woodcock piece of the like, component there is 27 states. And if you know woodcock, you know that there really aren't any woodcock west of about where I'm at, west of the Mississippi. So that's, you know, that's half the country right there. In 27 states, there are species of greatest conservation need. And they almost, they feel more abundant. And that's probably me thinking just along the lines of a Great Lakes rough grouse and woodcock hunter. You know, I, I find plenty of woodcock, but I know that that's obviously not anywhere near the entire story. But for them to be a species of greatest conservation need in 27 states, I mean, what's going on, Brent? Yeah, and you know, I mean, you 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 probably are aware as well. I mean, the the other aspect is there may still be relatively abundant populations, but if they are on decline, and if the habitat on which they depend, you know, in that given state is being impacted, then they still qualify for part of that assessment. Um, you know, woodcock as a migratory species certainly have a range of different threats depending on what seasonal habitat you're talking about. But uh, there also has to be, you know, again, if the only threat in a given state is uh, an impact on wintering habitat for a species elsewhere, well, then there's there's not really a conservation need in that given state. That's not the case with woodcock. You know, they're, they're, they can face threats on both sides from those of us that are up here in states where they don't overwinter. We know wintering habitat affects them. We know stopover yeah. habitat. They need to have good quantity and quality and, and, uh, and access to stopover habitat. Um, and then breeding habitat when they're up here. So, but there is a, there is a part to be played for states up here in the Great Lakes having ample habitat that they're going to use throughout the portion of the year that they're here. And again, the point of the of the legislation and of this designation is identifying those species before it's too late, um, that there's still a need to intervene and, and provide assurance that they have a safe and secure future. Yeah, and of course, in the case of grouse and woodcock, there's plenty of other species, uh, particularly other bird species that use similar habitats that are also yeah. species of greatest conservation needs. So you could say, hey, we're doing a, a golden-winged warbler project. Well, you know, we know that that's going to be benefiting in most instances, uh, grouse and woodcock as well, um, because of the linkages to habitat, what you're doing for habitat to improve uh, wildlife that use the same uh, components. You know, there's going to be a variety of species that will benefit from that work. Circling back to Rawa itself. So if I'm understanding correctly, key takeaway is this is conservation funding that is coming from outside of the traditional hunting, fishing world, the Pittman, Robertson, excise tax, that sort of thing. This is that's right. outside funding that's going to help, obviously, wildlife, habitat. How does that actually impact habitat on the ground? And if we can take it a step further and talk about why upland hunters, folks listening to this very niche-specific podcast, should be at least aware of Rawa, what do we tell them? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think many folks are familiar. The other thing in our community that we are concerned about and trying to work uh, to address is the declining hunting participation. You know, that's a challenge yeah. to be able to keep the keep the traditions and the cultures going. But most folks realize that's also a challenge because hunting license fees are a huge source of revenue for state agencies that, again, have so much of the responsibility for managing wildlife. Purchase of firearms and ammunition has been a little more cyclic because there's so much interest in, in sport shooting outside of hunting. 
And those sales often go with political cycles. When there's concerns about potential restrictions on firearms and ammunition, the sales can go up independent of what's happening with hunter numbers. So the the Pittman-Robertson funds, though, include taking excise taxes, taking the tax off of firearms and ammunition, and then distributing it out to states based on a formula, their land base, and the number of hunters they have. Um, So firearms and ammunition are part of the big driver for funding for Pittman-Robertson, but then it goes back out to the states based on their number of hunters. Um, And then Pittman-Robertson funds have to be matched with some non-federal source of funding. And so sometimes states uh, find themselves with a decent amount of PR money available to them, but not a lot, not enough or challenging to find enough money that's a non-federal match, those those, uh, hunting license dollars. So RAWA won't necessarily uh, solve that problem except that what, let me let me let me back up. Rawa, for one thing, brings in another source of funding that is consolidated by the federal government and distributed to the states. So diversifying our conservation portfolio, if you will. That's right. So you've got another source of revenue coming in that's completely independent of these other other things, other um, uh, um, firearm and ammunition sales and license sales. What it will do again is laid out in the wildlife action plans. So those plans. We, we kind of stopped. We said, hey, it identifies the threats, it identifies the species involved, it also identifies the actions that need to be taken in order to address gotcha. those threats. So each of those plans would say, hey, in the case of species A, B, and C, here are some of the main threats, here are some of the uh, steps we need to take to be able to address that. And so that funding, as it would be apportioned out to the states, um, they uh, state agencies would be authorized to spend it to take the steps they identify within their wildlife action plans. The most recent version of RAWA that came out in July also eliminated the need to have a non-federal match of funds to RAWA funds. So again, I said Pittman-Robertson monies sometimes are booming even when hunter numbers are stable or declining. Um, and that can create challenges for states to have enough non-federal matching money to be able to get their full amount of uh, eligible Pittman-Robertson funds. Well, the latest version of RAWA, the change would not require a non-federal match. So that means states would be able to take advantage of it if they were uh, finding challenges, um, particularly to match both Pittman-Robertson and RAWA funds um, to a non-federal source. Gotcha. Yeah. We talked a little bit earlier about being a part of the conversation, and and I know from talking to you that you were you were involved in RAWA and its I guess I don't know if implementation is the right word, but mm-hmm. can you talk about how Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society participated in that conversation and helped to shape what it looks like? Yeah, there's an organization called the Alliance for America's Fish and Wildlife that is a broad partnership based coalition that has come about specifically with the objective of getting the Recovering America's Wildlife Act passed. So I had mentioned we've been working for over three years. You know, there have been other efforts to diversify funding for conservation um, and to direct that conservation funding to a broader array of species. Um, But this, uh, this Recovering America's Wildlife Act grew out of kind of a, a blue ribbon panel con- convened experts and industry professionals and folks familiar with public affairs and so forth that really dug in and identified this growing gap in conservation funding and made the recommendations for developing this alternative source. And I actually, I made a, I made a mistake the last time I mentioned the consistent, one of the things that was consistent up until recently is the initial source of funding 
identified was revenue from oil and gas offshore leases. And uh, that was originally the the focus through several iterations in the House and, and Senate. More recently, because that source of funding is actually used for other things, including Land and Water Conservation Fund, which we may talk about mm-hmm. a bit here too, yep. they bridged away from uh, that source of revenue. Uh, it just was something that continued to be tapped into repeatedly. And uh, so the state wildlife action plans and the good work the state agencies have done still would direct the Recovering America's Wildlife Act revenues into the activities that it would support. I mentioned that latest iteration removes the need to have non-federal match. doesn't mean the agencies can't do that. For example, state drummer funds are a way that state agencies can match any of their federal sources, whether it's Pittman-Robertson where there's a required non-federal match, or if RAWA comes about, simply makes sense when there's work that we would like to support that they have additional revenue for, we'd still gladly welcome up matching funds to be able to uh, stretch their their dollars even farther, even under a diversified approach. Just to clarify there and be 100% clear, you mentioned state drummer funds. That those would be funds raised by a local Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society chapter. Yeah, exactly. What we call what we call state drummer funds are uh, the pool of resources in every state that um, you know the primary fundraising event for chapters in that state feeds revenue from those fundraisers into their state drummer funds. Um, so the money's raised in 2020 will be available, you know, in 2021 and future. Um, of course, more and more of those events are virtual and other ways that we're being able to, to still get get funds raised and be able to put good habitat work on the ground uh, to keep the, the drummer fund funded and working for our uh, members and supporters benefit. So I'm starting to see how all these dots connect almost more so you've, you've painted a, a good picture of it, Brent, in that you've got RGS being a part of these conversations at a very high level, influencing legislation, influencing the con- conservation funding dollars, what we have, what the resources that we all have really to improve wildlife habitat for the things that we care about. You work on that legislation and then you go all the way down to the bottom where a local chapter like myself, our Duluth Superior chapter, we raise banquet funds, we set aside drummer funds, and then you've got sort of the person in the middle, which could be a forest conservation director for Rough Grouse Society, and they're taking state drummer funds and they're taking advantage of the legislation that was worked on at a very high level to match and maximize the dollars that we raise as a local Rough Grouse Society chapter to actually do on-the-ground habitat work. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, there's other there's other threads you can pluck at to see they're woven into kind of this whole tapestry as well from perspective, for example, of those wildlife action plans. You know, when yeah. the state is going through and revising those plans, um, we work with our state chapters, volunteers, again, I'll say supporters, because when we put out action alerts, we certainly want it to go far beyond even just our membership. Anybody that yeah. that stands to benefit from good, healthy forests should hopefully use some of the intel we can provide and, and act on it. So we can also work to help make sure that there are good, um, solid principles and identified priorities in the wildlife action plan, um, which we have done, and then um, keep grinding away, trying to get the raw legislation at the federal level through. So states can still use those action plans. There is a small source of funds that's federally made available to them that they can compete for to get a few dollars to uh, implement work there. Um, but the whole point of RAWA is to kind of take it to a whole other level to be able to provide them with an, an annual um, reliable source of funding to keep that good work going. And uh, the tracks are kind of laid. Um, we just need to be able to get that um, 
engine fuel and get it um, yeah. down the line to be able to really impact things on the ground. Cool. All right. Next item. This one was a little bit more, at least a little bit more visible in some of the circles that I yeah. spend time in. And this was, it really all kind of came to a head last week. The Great American Outdoors Act. Tell me about it, Brent. Yeah. So the Great American Outdoors Act, it, this was actually, we put out a, an action alert just uh, in, in March, just before everything started to kind of slow down. That was the point where the Senate passed um yeah the, their version of the great american outdoors act and then things kind of went quiet for a while and um there was a lot of political wrangling and positioning going on and there was a little bit of concern about whether this was really going to get legs or not and then heading into july you know the traction kind of was gained we put out another call on uh, july 21st the day before the house of representative had their vote on the 22nd and passed that that Senate version. So there's a little back and forth that happened between Senate and House versions, but now they both passed that same version. There's two really key portions to it. One is, as I'd referenced before, Land and Water Conservation Fund, or LWCF. That's where a lot of the attention has been. So LWCF got what is called permanent reauthorization a little more a year ago. That's another thing that we had some action alerts on and it was yep. incorporated into what was eventually the John Dingle Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act. So that basically said a lot of these acts, they're passed for a five or 10 year period and then they'll go away. They'll expire if Congress doesn't reauthorize them. So they got permanent reauthorization in LWCF, so Congress doesn't have to keep taking it up. But over all the years LWCF has been around, it essentially takes a, a, a pot of money, and I reference that, uh, oil and gas leases, yeah. uh, revenue from oil and gas leases, and it dumps it into account to be able to use by LWCF. But Congress has to then appropriate that money. They have to then basically withdraw from that account and say it's now uh, authorized to be used by these various programs under LWCF. And... Typically, they didn't do that full amount of appropriation every year. So I think it's it maybe even has grown beyond that. But there's basically been 22 billion billion with a B dollars of funds that could have gone into LWCF that went somewhere else. Wow. Um, over the years, now Great American Outdoors Act decided into law that will guarantee that 900 million dollars annually that could go to LWCF will, in fact, go directly to those programs. So that's going to be a huge bump, and it's going to be predictable. It's going to be, you know, it's really, there's a lot of things that aren't aren't predictable right. these days. Right. But having that predictability, you know where those, those funds are going to go, because there's a variety of other programs that are kind of nested into LWCF, you know, so when the overall appropriation isn't as high, then each of the individual programs have to adjust what's going to be available to them. And now there's going to be a lot more predictability and stability there. So that was a huge benefit. Under that, LWCF funds can be spent for land acquisition. They provide matching grants for state and local park recreation projects. So even things like a community park, baseball diamond, other things can be eligible for states to compete for um, receiving some LWCF funds. There's also, you know, a little bit closer to home um, for our members, there's a variety of grant programs that can help support working forests um, and wildlife habitat. And so one of those, the, the Forest Legacy Program, or FLP, has been able to help with conservation of over over 2.5 million acres of working forest lands. And one of the main way it, ways it does that is providing funding for conservation easements for lands that will stay working forests, but the landowners can enter into a conservation easement 
receive funding through that program, the Forest Legacy Program, that says it will stay a working forest, it will not be developed, um, and it helps provide another source of revenue for them when markets are challenging and where the, the ability to hold on to land to, to be able to be a um, – you know, a family-owned but but working forest land can be very expensive to maintain, and uh, purchasing those or uh, selling those conservation easements to be another source of revenue, so folks can keep them providing habitat, keeping the local economy, and so forth. So yeah. those are some of the down in the weeds details of what stands to benefit. The program's not new, but having a reliable, predictable source of money that can go into that and all the other things for LWCF is a really huge victory. That bill passing the Senate, it now needs to be signed into law by the president or has that already happened it needs to be signed into law the indication is right from the start has been that that will happen so that is an right. expectation um and then there's another chunk beyond lwcf another piece that's gotten a little less attention is there's a big chunk of funding that are going to that's going to go into infrastructure on public lands broadly um, so initially there was a bill called the restore our parks act congress was getting a lot of attention about how um behind the times national parks were on keeping up with their infrastructure maintenance. So infrastructure, roads, uh, bathrooms, visitor centers, you know, national parks out of all the public land, uh, federal land has a lot of that infrastructure. Uh, they haven't had the funding they've needed to maintain it. But Congress was putting a lot of attention into that, those needs, and they were overlooking for a long time the fact that places like national forests and national wildlife refuges also have a huge amount of infrastructure that has really struggled to have the funding needed to keep up with it. Um, so we worked along with a variety of other partners to make sure that that Restore Our Parks Act concept got expanded and uh, places like National Forests and National Wildlife Refuges would also be eligible for funding. And so under the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, there's going to be about $10 billion, um, with a B, dollars of funds that are going to go into infrastructure on those public lands. So things like your local national forest where uh, roads and trails and other things are in such a, in such a shape that it's really hard to, to access and get back to the places that you like to use. Um, campgrounds and other places might be shut down because they uh, can't keep maintenance up, especially if there's a big rain event and a flood and a washout and something just they don't have the money in their budget to be able to contend with that kind of stuff. That slug of funding through Great American Outdoors Act is also going to be um, a big benefit to be able to get more of those facilities uh, where they need to be to handle an even higher level of recreation that they've seen now with uh, times being as they are right. people turning to outdoor recreation much more even than they did just a few months ago. Yeah. Aside from some of the things you mentioned, like land acquisition, conservation easement for somebody wanting to keep their land working for us, are there any other aspects of the Great American Outdoors Act, LWCF, all these things that Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society would be targeting specifically? Are there avenues for you to enact more forest management on particular properties? How, how will those pieces kind of fall into place? Not necessarily forest management, but the thing to keep in mind, again, as a reference, we, we work as both, a, both staff and with our member base um, to engage with especially entities like the Forest Service, right yep. down to the local level. So forest plans or uh, forest management plans or transportation plans include identifying where there's need to improve or maintain or, or expand, you know, trails and roads and other access. So fortunately, you know, LWCF and Great American Outdoors Act doesn't line item reference how much the Chippewa National Forest is going to receive for trail improvement, enhancement, or so forth. 
but the pot of money will become available, and then we'll be able to work with our, our chapters and local members especially to look at, all right, what project needs are out there where this needs to be addressed? Got it. And then we can engage more directly with local managers um, to be able to help them take advantage of that funding in a, in a positive way. Things like the Forest Legacy Program, that's what I referenced with conservation easements. Yep. Um, again, having a reliable, predictable amount of funding there uh, opens the doors up for us as we're getting much more serious about this whole broad concept of working lands, working for wildlife. Easements yep. are a great way, again, to make acquisitions more affordable. Um, so we look at opportunities for acquisitions directly for us or working with um, partners through a collaboratively funding process to purchase lands and keep them, you know, working for wildlife, um, those easements would be another valuable source of, of funding to be able to kind of fit into, again, as your reference of a diversified portfolio to be able to get this work done. Good stuff. I know more about the Great American Outdoors Act now than I did before I called you, Brent. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next item of business. This was one uh, I was I was texting our friend Kellen Curl about this over the weekend, and a lot of people were, I guess, drawing some attention to this, but there's something going on right now this week in Indiana regarding rough grouse, yeah. and it is absolutely my hope to get this podcast edited and cleaned up in with enough time for folks to listen to this, hear it, digest it, and hopefully take action in the ways that we're going to talk about here. But tell me a little bit about what's going on in the situation in Indiana. Rough Grouse Society has talked about this quite a bit over the last couple of years that's been going on. The rough grouse is proposed to be state endangered in Indiana. That is not new news, but right now there's there's some things going on with respect to that situation. Yeah, so this week, July 29th and 30th, Wednesday and Thursday, the Indiana Natural Resources Commission will be having uh, public hearings regarding an overall kind of package of, of uh of updates to their fish and wildlife rule changes. Uh, but the wildlife rules package includes that proposed state endangered listing for rough grouse. So from historic perspective, in about the early 80s, Indiana was harvesting more than 10,000 grouse per year. So from the early 80s, about 10,000 grouse a year harvested in the state. Up to 2015, grouse hunting was suspended in the state. So you can do a little bit of math there. In less than 40 years, about 40 years' time, they went from a relatively widespread species able to be enjoyed by hunters on an annual basis um, to no hunting being able to be supported any longer. Um, And we have supported and pushed for, we actually filed a petition for rulemaking with the NRC urging them to make that state endangered designation. The way state legislation works in Indiana, you know, some folks, um, understandably so, can be concerned about endangered species listings because sometimes there's so many restrictions when you have a potential endangered species in an area that you can't do the management you need to do even to sustain them without a bunch of extra hoops and other things to to jump through. Um, That's not universally the case, but it can be a problem. With the state legislation, there is not a restriction put on being able to, um, you know, develop habitat in a place where uh, grouse would be located or have historically been located. Um, And having that designation to say clearly identifies 
within all the recommendations from their um, advisory committee and all the filings that we've made, the reason is the loss of habitat. That's the that's what's driven grouse to the brink of extirpation in the state. So getting that state endangered listing will really highlight this is not just hunters complaining about not having good hunting conditions. This is still largely hunters, hunter conservationists saying, it's so dire we may lose this species entirely. Um, yeah. You know, for folks that haven't been able to even hunt grouse in the state for going on five years to say, we still want to spend our time. We still want to spend our uh, our attention. Uh, we still want to um, contribute finances to the the cause of getting the public to recognize the plight of grouse and uh, many other species that need the same type of habitat in the state um, is inspiring. So it can be frustrating and and discouraging to see what's happened to grouse, but it's pretty inspiring to see folks still really willing to work so hard even though it's going to take a huge amount of work to be able to rebuild populations to a point where um, they may potentially support, you know, hunting once again, it's still the right thing to do for conservation. So we're asking folks, you know, if they're, if they're healthy, if they can safely attend, um, feel comfortable attending those meetings, they can certainly do so. If not, there's also an online opportunity. Our homepage, of course, from our, our blog right up front has all kinds of links to background information, but it's also, in.gov forward slash nrc forward slash 2377. That's the link that gets folks to all the uh, uh, upcoming rule changes being explored. And you scroll down to that wildlife rule change package, and you'll see a link right there. You can comment online, let folks know that uh, we support the endangered listing for grouse part of the rule package and uh, try and make sure there's enough support to get this uh victory across the finish line too yeah and there's a, a blog post on the rough girl society website right now that would be pretty recent if somebody were to go there they can find that and find more information on exactly how to get that i'll, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes to take it a little a step further so i'm gathering the idea is we want the rough grouse to be listed as an endangered species in indiana at this moment in time because that is necessary what is there is there strong opposition to that are there what is the opportunity to comment for folks that are supporting rough grouse and and hope to better the future of rough grouse in indiana what is the opportunity and what is the potential opposition or i guess why is it important that we speak up at this time yeah i mean so far there has not been a lot of organized opposition um but there are some indiana has been a state with a big surge in preservationist kind of tendency and attitudes in recent years um and by preservationist i mean organizations and individuals uh speaking out very strongly against any type of forest management um there's been efforts to kind of reach out into the recreation community. And again, I think it's kind of a fabricated conflict. I mean, I can understand some folks that are hiking out in an area, you know, while there's an active timber harvest going on, that can be noisy and disturbing for them. But managing, you know, good good management of those public forest lands um, where people cannot be out publicly recreating, 
also brings all kinds of variety and diverse wildlife there. And it's another reason many people get out and use those lands. They like interacting with wildlife. Um, and I mean, I'm, I, I'm not telling you, Nick, or probably most people listening to this, anything they don't know that right. no management leads to mostly tall, older, mature, majestic looking trees with nothing in the understory. Um, yeah. And there's certain aspects of, of, uh, of, uh, habitat and wildlife values there. Um, but the key is if you can't manage, you cannot intentionally plan for an appropriate amount of young forest and, uh, and a necessary amount to sustain species. So, yeah, there's been a little more pushback that folks have even recognized. There's not a dispute that grouse are in bad shape, uh, but there's been a little more organized effort to say, ooh, with this listing, um, there might be more forest management going on. And so there's been a kind of soft sell approach about maybe this isn't such a good thing. Um, and I'm concerned the way that some of those things have caught fire in, in past efforts to do things like try and set aside a portion of state forests um, that there shall never, ever be any management remaining in. Some of those things have, have jumped up out of nowhere and gotten a big uh, push of support recently. So that's why we made the effort. We don't want to be overconfident that this change is likely to happen. Um, we've seen some inkling that there could be a pushback um, against it, and we just want to make sure that folks that feel that um, it's important to speak up on behalf of, of uh, grouse and other young forest species um make sure they make the point to say that they feel that that listing is warranted that's an important point i mean that's that's one of the things that was i I referenced it earlier was kind of going around this weekend one of those groups kind of went as far as to basically put up a picture of a rough grouse and said you know don't let this endangered species listing cause any more clear cutting and of course they use the word clear cutting which is which is certainly a it's more of a charged word in my opinion than than forest management and it was i mean the hypocrisy in the post was just amazing and i i don't i won't ask you to comment on that brent but i i only bring it up in just to basically highlight the fact that these people aren't necessarily playing fair and you know the rough grouse clearly we talked about species of greatest conservation need with the number of states 19 after they're a species of greatest conservation need, they become an endangered species. That's what's happening in Indiana right now. So we don't want another 19 of these to come through or more than that. This is, this is a critical moment for rough grouse. And it's, you know, I, I don't, I haven't been to Indiana. I don't hunt there, but I know enough people that are part of the Indiana rough grouse society chapter that are, I mean, they're, as you say, Brent, they're passionate. They have been vocal about this. They're super engaged. And, you know, I feel motivated to stand up for them because it, man, if the time ever came for, for me in my home state, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would be there as well. But it's, it's just a, it's a critical moment. And it's something that we shouldn't really turn a, turn a blind eye to just because you don't live or hunt in a, in a specific state. I mean, this problem is, is much bigger than Indiana. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one uh, positive takeaway from this, Nick, is that word is getting out. Folks are seeing how hard yeah. Uh, the groundswell is to push for the conservation needs for grouse and other species in the state. Um, you know, any comment that this will cause more clear cutting or even cause more forest management, even if you're not using a what can be a, right. a misleading term, um, you know, is simply not true. The listing is not going to mandate that um, – agency managers do anything it's a step in the direction to just bring recognition that that lack of management is what's 
brought about the sorry state of affairs for grouse now. Um, and again, yeah. getting that listing will, I think, you know, be impactful for the broader public um, to realize um, that in a pretty short period of time, what has befallen grouse um, is pretty startling. And to reach that point to require a state listing and again to have many hunter conservationists speaking up on behalf of that would really be a good message to send that Indiana needs to be very serious about doing some of the hard work that's going to be needed to uh, to benefit grouse and, and see that they don't uh, decline further and we work really hard to reverse that decline. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned... 40 years. And we, this is one of those terms that I think it gets brought up in conversations like this, but I mean, that's less than a lifetime. I know, I know people that have been hunting grouse for more than 40 years. So the point of that being, it could happen there, it could happen here. And we don't want that. We gotta, we gotta turn the tides the other way. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, um, grouse and woodcock hunters have a, uh, a leg up on many other folks that spend time outdoors is just seeing that connection to habitat because, yeah. you know, 40 years or less can bring out that kind of a precipitous decline, you know, 10 and 10 or 20 years of hunting in the kind of covers that we're in. You can see that, you know, that's a, that's a quick enough event when you get out there to say, you know, I, I can relate to just over a short period what's changed here. And I'm realizing I'm not encountering birds here like I used to before. Um, so that's, that's picked up on by folks that spend their time out, you know, hunting and pursuing these species. And fortunately that, tends to carry over to our members being receptive to those calls to action to say, gosh, we can't, we can't afford to lose another 10 years of inactivity on something. We got to get activity going. We got to get action. We got to bring resources to these needs. And even though there might be a lot of other things going on right now, a lot of other distractions, you know, in someone's personal life or in the broader society at large, we just can't afford to sit back and not take these opportunities seriously. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the stuff that we talked about today is probably not, it's not breaking news. It's not really new news, especially to Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society members, like you say. I mean, they have, generally speaking, myself included, have a connection to the resource. And a lot of this stuff makes so much sense to us, but we are a small niche group of people. And that's that's kind of the fight. The fight is to educate and bring that knowledge and awareness to as many people people as we can. So I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that there are people listening to this that have learned more about what RGS and AWS does, how they impact legislation all the way from the top, all the way down to habitat work on the ground, as well as getting people to engage on important issues like this, you know, at the state level, the Indiana, the Indiana issue that we're talking about. I mean, all of this stuff is incredibly important, but we of course need everybody's help and we need as many people as we can to join the conversation and be a part of it, join the movement. That's really what it's all about. So I think we, we talked about a lot of those issues and uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with us, Brent. Yeah, no, it's always a good conversation. I know um, the one thing we benefit from, you know, the name Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society sounds really narrow, but the mission is impacting forest habitat. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that resonates with folks on the ground. It resonates with our partners. You know, a lot of what we do as a small, you know, small but scrappy organization um, is expanded a lot by work with partners as well. Like you've seen some of the background too, American Wildlife Conservation Partners or AWCP. 
uh, one of those other things that's kind of behind the scenes, and I hope it comes forward a little more and release the latest platform position, Wildlife for the 21st Century, is what AWCP has been behind and are working to roll that out to the presidential campaign committees right now. You know, all the distractions in federal politics and the federal election coming up, we're going to work really hard to try and get some attention from both of the campaigns and uh, members of Congress behind a few key steps they could do to put in place and address conservation and sportsmen's interests as they're speaking on the campaign stumps coming up. So that's been a, a great opportunity. AWCP is now over 50 organizations in membership. There were 35 organizations originally, the kind of leading conservation organizations in the nation, which included Rough Grouse Society at the time that they were formed uh, 20 years ago. And as a partnership, really ups, upped the game in terms of directly engaging with each presidential administration. And then again, backing it up to work with campaign and then transition teams because, you know, someone campaigning for president makes promise on a campaign trail and gets their transition team lined up with this uh, platform. There's a lot of real positive impacts that can be made from that. So we'll be working really hard as an organization and as a partnership to get attention for that in the months to come as the campaign season heats up. So it's always hopping from one thing to the next. It's great to have the actual opportunities on the plate to take advantage of. And again, our enthusiasts know you can't afford to lose out on the opportunity to impact the habitat on the ground. So getting at the highest levels from um, presidential administrations signing on to things that a number of organizations agree are a, a top priority and um, they're all great conservation gains. And there's a few very specific to our interests that would be uh, outstanding. So folks pay attention to that too. Take a look at that policy platform as information again on the, the RGS blog regarding those and, and uh, watch. We'll be trying to really push that message in the, in the weeks and months to come too. My membership dollars at work, Brent. I like it. You got I'll, it. I'll keep, send, I'll keep sending you guys the check and you keep at it for us. Yeah, we will stretch each each one of those dollars as far as we can, and and working through partnerships and getting our you know our interests uh, picked up and magnified by the other organizations and other members out there is one of the key ways we do that. Absolutely, never too late, never a better time to join Rough Grouse Society. I heard a rumor that there might be a membership drive starting later this week. There might be uh, might be some details about that in the in the show intro and the show notes. So I will, uh, folks may have already heard that, but. Definitely head over to roughgrousesociety.org. Anywhere else they can find out more information about any of the things we talked about, Brent, and or perhaps follow you on social media? Um, probably the one I use most would be Twitter. It's B-A Rudolph, B-A-R-U-D-O-L-P-H. They can find me there. They can certainly find RGS on the variety of socials. We're certainly trying to push these things out you know we actually uh we try not to overburden people with emails there's always again there's always these late breaking policy things um, yeah and um we'll be getting a subscription service together so folks that want that kind of info can get it and not have it mixed in with the reminders to renew membership and stuff like that but uh socials are always a good place to see especially the way things evolve and break on a fast pace so yeah Folks should follow us along there and pay attention to the good stuff we got going on, trying to work on uh, on behalf of your interests. All right. Great stuff, Brent. I appreciate it again for taking the time to talk to me and the listeners of the Project Upland podcast. I thank you for the work that you do at Rough Grouse Society and for the work that everybody does there. Appreciate it, and have a great day, man. All right, Nick. Thanks a lot. All right. See ya.
All right, that does it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. A quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast for your chance to win the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. And head over to projectupland.com for more of the Upland birds, dogs, guns, and gear that you love. Until we see you back here for the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gun Dog It Yourself Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gun Doggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.